I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community and the people that bring community to life. The theme of this week's show is Nebraska. As 2017 is Nebraska's sesquicentennial, a 150th anniversary deserves a two-part show. This is part two of the Nebraska-themed show. With me in conversation is Chris Summerick, the Executive Director of Humanities Nebraska. Chris Summerick was named Humanities Nebraska Executive Director in 2011, having joined in 2004. Chris has bachelor's and master's degrees in political science from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln and earned a certified fundraising executive certification in 2007. In 2014, Chris was elected to the board of directors of the Federation of State Humanities Councils and he was a member of Class 7 of Leadership Nebraska in 2014-2015. Chris lives in Lincoln with his wife Vicki and two sons, Eli and Benjamin. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Stuart. I, I guess my first question for you is, when you think about Nebraska, what comes to mind? It's a combination to me of natural, what comes to mind is a natural, a sense of the natural beauty of Nebraska and the people and culture of Nebraska. And I think my relationship to the state as a, as a complete state really started with um, when I worked in a conservation organization and was traveling the state a lot visiting various um, sites around the state that have a lot of natural beauty. And, you know, when you drive across Interstate 80, you don't maybe see that. You see a lot of cornfields as you drive across the state. But when you go north to south and see all the different areas of the state from, you know, the wooded hill, hills near Missouri, you know, moving on up across into the Central Platte and, you know, the Sandhill Crane migration and things like that, up into the Sand Hills, then up to the Niobrara River, and then out west uh, to the, you know, cattle country and short grass prairie and all that. So my first connection to the state was the, the natural beauty of the state. But over the last 10 or 15 years and working for Humanities Nebraska, I've added to that getting to know the people all over the state and a lot of the cultural treasures, I think, of the state that and, and local communities that really make Nebraska what it is as well. And it's a remarkable place. So you mentioned three things, natural beauty, uh, people and culture, and you talked a little bit about natural beauty. And I want to talk about the other two aspects first. Sure. But maybe talk a little bit more about this natural landscape. I mean, Nebraska is a huge territory. Right. And you've mentioned some aspects of that natural beauty. And I get a sense that probably you have some strong appreciation for it. And I'd, I'd like to hear more sure. about that. Sure. And I didn't know that I would have that. I did not grow up in Nebraska. I moved to Nebraska when I was 16 from Missouri. And so, you know, I went from a, a different kind of landscape uh, near the St. Louis area out here and, and having the horizons, you know, everywhere you look and the flat, relatively flat landscape um, was new. And I didn't realize right away how much I would come to identify with that as as my landscape. And so I feel very at home out in the middle of the sand hills, for example, you know. And now when I go back to Missouri or when I go visit family in other parts of the country, I feel a little bit claustrophobic, you know, closed in by trees or winding roads and hills and whatnot. So, um, yeah, I, th I think there's something to the fact that people – gravitate towards different kinds of landscapes, different kinds of surroundings that they feel truly at home in, and I found it here in Nebraska. That makes me wonder how anybody in life ever gets to know if they're in the right landscape. And you had to come here to find that for yourself, but for others, perhaps it's um, the ocean, for others right. it may be something lakeside, uh, maybe mountainous, and then there are city dwellers. And for some right. people, if it's not New York City, it's nowhere. That's uh, true. And if you've ever been with somebody from New York City in the Sandhills, it's an entertaining experience watching their discomfort. Really, this, uh, this uncomfortable sense they have looking around and seeing nothing but gently rolling hills, not a tree to be seen, no buildings, no nothing. And you know, it's it's just fu it's funny. It makes a real impression on some of those city people that haven't really been outside of that urban landscape very much. So I have a, a little story to tell you about Amy Sandine. But before sure. I do that, why don't you 
tell the audience who Amy Sandine is. Amy Sandine is the executive director of the Prairie Loft Center near Hastings, and she grew up in Hastings and moved to Minneapolis um, and um, had a uh, bit of a music career there, I think. she was. She's a great musician. She's very talented in many ways. Um, but a few years back, she was lured back to Hastings to take on development of the Prairie Loft Center uh, right on the outskirts of Hastings. And, and she's a remarkably creative person. And she's on the board of directors of Humanities Nebraska, too. So I had a conversation with her uh, a little while ago, and she was explaining how in doing an educational program for urban youth, one young man was on a night hike with uh, the group, and, and he just stopped and looked straight up into the sky and slowly turned, and Amy watched him, and, and then he was turning, looking at the stars, and just said, yo, mad fat stars, yo. <laughs> yes. Yeah. If you live in a city, you may not even realize that there's that many stars at all. You just don't get the chance to see it. Right. Yeah. So that seems to be um, part of the appeal of the natural landscape, certainly, right. for you. Both. Right. So there's this daytime vista mm-hmm. and a nighttime vista, mm-hmm. too. You also mentioned sandhills mm-hmm. and sandhill cranes. Right. And I, I see from Instagram that that seems to be a passion of yours, too. It is. And, you know, years back, I worked at Audubon, National Audubon Society. And so I, um, you know, fell into a love with uh, those kinds of natural um, resources, like I was saying, and things like the Sandhill Cream migration, where now people from all over the world come to central Nebraska in March and and see this, what they call one of the greatest wildlife spectacles um, in the world anymore. I mean, people who go on African safaris say it's every bit as impressive as a herd, a herd of wildebeest seeing sandhill cranes, you know, hundreds of thousands of them packed into the river, you know, lifting off in the morning. So uh, a lot of Nebraskans have lived around that all their lives, but never really given it a lot of thought. They're just kind of come and go each spring. Um, but to people from other parts of the country, it's a really unique experience to come check that out. How, how does that work as in um for people that are unfamiliar with this, right, the idea of just going to watch one of the greatest migrations on the planet, mm-hmm. how does someone do that? <laughs> um, there are places along the Platte River uh, where um, sanctuaries have been created and viewing blinds for people. Uh, so Audubon's one, Nature Conservancy, uh, the Crane Trust, places like this have created opportunities for people to come a- and see this uh, as the cranes migrate through. And it's kind of a, it's an interesting relationship. A lot of the sandhill cranes feed on the, on the, um, the waste corn in the fields left over from the previous year's corn crops. And so, and it's before the farmers start plowing the, for the current year. And so the farmers don't really care if all these cranes are there. <laughs> and, and so they're, you know, they're feeding on this waste corn during the day to put on body weight before they continue their migration up to Canada, Alaska, Siberia. I mean, they really spread out. Uh, so they just hang out in central Nebraska for a few weeks. And it's just one of those interesting things that uh, you, there just aren't many, many other examples I can think of of wildlife doing that, just congregating in a relatively, I mean, it's basically from Grand Island to maybe a little west of Kearney. You know, it's not that big of maybe an 80 mile an hour, 80 mile stretch of river. And uh, yeah, people love it. And, you know, it's, you get to meet people from all over the country if you roam around out there. I love that idea of that many sandhill cranes and the state, which is about uh, 200,000 square kilometers in, in size has not quite 2 million people in it. Right. And, and to compare that with uh, natural wildlife yeah. is, is somewhat interesting. Right, right. Yeah. So one of the other aspects you mentioned about uh, what comes to mind when you think about Nebraska was people. Right. And so just mentioning how many people were in the state and one of the uh, largest ancestral groups 
for Nebraska uh, uh, Germans. Mm-hmm. And it will become clear, I think, later why that might be of relevance uh, here. But tell me a little bit more about what it is about the people here that um, made yeah. you remark upon them as, as yeah. um, something of a affinity. Right. And so, um, you know, keep in mind, so not having grown up here, I, you know, growing up in the St. Louis area, the gateway to the West. Okay. So I grew up in an area that was the launching point for people of European descent to migrate West, you know? And so that, that was a unique identity in the St. Louis area where I grew up. And so moving out here to Nebraska and then getting to know Nebraskans, you're meeting these people that are a few generations removed from their ancestors, having decided from wherever they came from, Germany or, or you know, um, Czech Republic or from Sweden or wherever, just to, to, to migrate to, or immigrate to the U.S. and then end up deciding for whatever reason to stop in Nebraska. You know, they may have been planning to go further west, maybe not. Maybe they, you know, they took advantage of the Homestead Act or whatever. But so Nebraska is full of these people that just, you know, it's in their genes, I guess, to be hard workers, to be um, independent and, uh, you know, just sort of self-sufficient. And and then just, you know, being, thinking about, you know, a lot of these people you meet are, um, you know, they trace their identity to that land to, you know, whoever in their family originally homesteaded it, you know. And then you juxtapose that to newer immigrant groups coming into Nebraska and also the original inhabitants, you know. And, you know, looking at the history of Nebraska, the tribes that were forced out, most of them, now down in, you know, places like Oklahoma, and, you know, Nebraska's population, I think, is still about 1% Native American compared to that 85% or something white. Um, you know, Nebraska is just an interesting place to look at kind of the or- original culture and trying to come to terms with how Nebraska got settled and what it meant to different people, different, you know, winners and losers from that. But having a real, for me, a real admiration for the people that um, – that did make a life here and have worked really hard to kind of sustain that life over time. And, and it's, I think, not easy. You know, uh, if you're here in Omaha or in Lincoln, you kind of lose track of what it's like to be out there farming and ranching and some of these uh, and the things that people do out there in the rest of the state. It's interesting to think about those motivators and the drive that, that brought people here right. uh, many generations ago. You've alluded to some of those traits and characteristics, this kind of pioneering right. urge. Yeah. It's a it's a hard question, but but how do you see some of those attributes showing up in people today? Yeah. You know, um it's interesting that we are I feel we are definitely a conservative state, uh fiscally conservative, politically conservative, and yet um, there is a streak of independence in this straight independent mindedness that I think in some surrounding states, it's a, it's a little bit different than in, in Nebraska. Um, so whatever, <laughs> whatever your political point of view, I feel like in Nebraska, as I move around the state and talk with people and meet people, um, it's not hard to like them. It's, it's not hard to find something you admire and like in people in this state, even if you don't agree with them politically in some ways. And also to think about their perspectives on things and um, from wherever, they're, wherever they came from, you know. I'll give an example. A couple weeks ago, I sent out a message uh, as, as Executive Director of Humanities Nebraska about preserving the National Endowment for Humanities because this, so of course there's a lot going on with the federal budget right now and different recommendations the uh, current administration is making to funding or not funding a variety of things. Some of those things being arts and culture related and National Endowment for the Arts, National Endowment for the Humanities, things like that. And I have, I put out a message about this relatively small amount of public taxpayer dollars uh, you know, really making a big difference for funding the humanities and, and making our work possible around the state. And it led to an interesting, a couple interesting email conversations with people who didn't share my point of view on that, uh, who, you know, are 
very conservative and felt that this wasn't a proper use of taxpayer dollars. And, and so, you know, they responded to me saying, I disagree with you. And, and I would thank them for responding to me and kind of probe a little bit more about their point of view and just leading to an interesting dialogue. And, um, you know, in one case, it was a rancher who was like fifth generation on the same property they their uh, ancestors homesteaded, and how hard how hard they work year round out there in the Sand Hills area. You know, ranching. You know, through winter blizzards or summer drought or whatever. And you know, I I just it's good to intermix with people with like those different experiences before I go shooting off my mouth about what people think or shouldn't think. That I uh, that illustration of fifth generation ranchers out in the sand hills having made this life and this lifestyle, it it, it brings to mind those classic images of the hardworking pioneering, uh, you know, American adventurer. Yeah, and also those um, the rootedness of the American experience and mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And it's exactly the kind of cultural story that you want to grab and mm-hmm. illustrate to tell a larger truth in some way about the American experience. Mm-hmm. And so even though the person you're describing is someone who doesn't necessarily want to see um, their cultural story funded, nonetheless, I think it's a story that I want to hear. Right. Um, which makes me want to ask you then about wh- what is what is it about the culture of Nebraska? You mentioned uh, that being another aspect that you mm-hmm. liked. What is it about the culture of Nebraska that seems to stand out for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was trying to get, it's hard to articulate, but I was part of it that I was trying to get to is that independent thinking um, I, does stand, stand out. Um, I feel it's interesting to me, and I don't know if you've seen this in your travels, but people in Nebraska seem to have, uh, relish their identity as Nebraskans in a way that you don't see in other states. So people feel special being from Nebraska. And, and I don't know, it's almost a state patriotism sometimes that, you know, you see um, when you travel, you don't see people, I, I don't want to get any trouble here, but from Indiana or Illinois or Iowa or any place like that, having the same sense of strong identity the way that I see with Nebraskans. And maybe it's because it's sort of overlooked as a state and not thought of that much and it's flyover country, whatever, I don't know. But that's an interesting piece of it. And I, and also, um, this, there's a, I feel there's a Nebraska sense of humor. It's, uh, humbleness, um, you know, it's really hard to put your finger on exactly what it is, but sometimes I find myself, especially with the older generations of Nebraskans, when you're having this conversation and and make they'll make some self-deprecating joke about something, but something also say something very insightful. And I just think that was so Nebraskan what he or she just said. And it's really hard to describe on the radio. Tell us a joke, Chris. <laughs> Tell us a Nebraskan no, joke. No, I couldn't possibly do that because you know what? I'm not a native Nebraskan, so oh, I can't I can't impersonate one. Keep bouncing. Keep bouncing. Thinking about the culture then of Nebraska makes me want to ask about the work of Humanities Nebraska. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about what Humanities Nebraska is and the work that you do. Sure. We've been around for 43 years now. And so uh, created in the early 70s to, and every state has a Humanities Council um, and we're all nonprofits. Um, we receive, as I was mentioning before, some federal funding through the National Endowment for the Humanities, a bit of state money. We raise private money. Uh, we have the Nebraska Cultural Endowment support as well. And through all that, we do a variety of things all over the state. One is giving out grants. You know, last week, our board met and twice a year. They um, award major grants for projects all over the state. And, you know, I was reflecting on what we just decided to support um, 
in our, this last round of major grants, and it gives you a sense of the great things happening all over Nebraska. Um, the the Good Living Tour that here in Nebraska does that travels the state. The Buffalo Common Storytelling Festival in McCook is something people should see. Um, there's a, a great um, project out at Ash Hollow um, State Historic Park near Newell- Llewellyn in the Sand Hills. Um, you know, uh, projects down in Brownville, uh, the Amer- Great American Comedy Festival in Norfolk, uh, Nebraska Shakespeare traveling the state doing um, programs. I mean, just things, a lot of great cultural activities that we fund through grants. And so that's, a, that's one big piece of it. One thing I would want to mention is we also do what we call a Chautauqua program. Um, Chautauqua is something that's been around for, since the late 19th century. And in those days, these these traveling Chautauquas would roam the Great Plains with people like Mark Twain and William Jennings Bryan and people like that. Great orators doing talks on contemporary issues mostly. And people would come from miles around and just camp out and there'd be a huge tent set up. And and so our Chautauqua is more on historical, we have historical figures um, speaking about different issues of different different times. Like right now, the one we're going to be doing this summer is on World War One, and we'll have that in Seward and, and um, Nebraska City this summer. And we do family reading programs, and we do um, just uh, we fund exhibitions touring the states from the Smithsonian. So a whole variety of things around history, literature, culture, other areas of the humanities. Uh, you know that just get people thinking about what does it mean to be human. What is a Chautauqua? Yeah, so a Chautauqua for us is um, it's we have scholars who portray historic figures, and um, they present in character as historic figures, and then the audience has a dialogue with them that can ask them questions. And um, you know, so in this current one this summer, it'll be for example something we have Woodrow Wilson, President Wilson. Uh, who got us into World War One? Uh, William Jennings Bryan, who was fighting against World War One initially, but then became Secretary of State for Woodrow Wilson, uh, and then people like uh, W. E. B. Du Bois, Jane Addams, um, Edith Wharton, and so the audience just gets gets to kind of travel back in time, I guess, a little bit, and 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 listen to these historic figures, and then interact with them, and so it's part entertainment and part a learning experience. Thinking about culture then and the work that you do, we were having a conversation before about what the word humanities comprises. Right. Maybe to define humanities is, is more easily done by telling people what what is done as right. a humanities project. You, you're absolutely right about that because in general, people think of the humanities as oh, maybe I had some of that in college or high school or something. You know, they, they have this vague recollection of some courses they took that were under the area of the humanities and they never quite really thought about what that meant. And, and that's, un, you know, that's understandable, um, but it is an obstacle, I guess, to, you know, to people really relating to it. And so you're right that the thing is, is they just have to, it's more about showing people. I say, you know, it's things that people, whatever people sit around the dinner table and argue about, you know, or whatever people want to think about as far as why is life worth living? Why, what does it mean to be human? What separates us from other animals, you know, just, um, and what does it mean to be part of a community? And what does it mean to be part of a global community versus the local community um, versus as an individual? And so, you know, but really, yeah, there's a whole list of disciplines that make up the humanities, those things like history, philosophy, literature, ethics, you know, um, art criticism, art theory, you know, there's a whole list of these things, but we don't, I don't, it's not really worth getting into that because it's, it is very broad and, but it all boils down to that. Just thinking about examining life and what it means to you and what does it mean to, to be part of the human race. So I think in some ways with what you just said, you're going to answer this question, but but let's see. Uh, <laughs> you mentioned funding before and that being a challenge right. for Nebraska Humanities. And I guess my question is, why should people care about the work of humanities? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I think you can answer that from a variety of ways. And one, I mean, in the most tangible way, it's looking at actual things happening around the state, you know, so how, whether you're in Omaha or a tiny little community in Western Nebraska, do you, does it mean anything to you to have opportunities for speakers to come in and give programs, to have exhibits at your local museum, to have any kind of activities go on in these areas as sort of cultural enrichment and educational cultural enrichment at that. So that's one way of looking at it is just actual things happening. If we didn't exist, a lot fewer of those things would be happening all over the state. And I would add particularly in rural areas, you know, I mean, here in Omaha, there is, there's a lot going on because there's a a lot of, um, there's a lot of resources. There's a lot of arts and culture. There's a lot of philanthropy supporting that arts and culture. I mean, people may take that for granted in Omaha, but a lot of people in Omaha aren't originally from here and they may be from small towns and moved here at some point. So I think it's even more important, these things I'm talking about, uh, it's very difficult for those things to happen in smaller communities without somebody like Humanities Nebraska helping fund it. Another reason I'd look, I'd say why is it important is Part of the reason the, the National Endowment for the Humanities was created 50-some years ago was based on this premise that a strong democracy demands wisdom and vision in its citizens. So um, if we value democracy and, and democracy thriving for the long haul, you need people to be informed, aware of the world around them, involved, thinking about things from different perspectives, you know, critically thinking about things, asking questions. And, you know, that's all what the humanities is about, whether or not people actually identify it as that. And so um, I think that's another thing for people to consider as far as what, whether they value an organization like Humanities Nebraska existing is, is um, sort of that civic side of things, I guess. And then finally, I, I, I guess I'd go back to, um, you know, the idea of, you know, what, what is life without the humanities? What, why, you know, if you envision a, a world where there isn't arts and culture and literature and all these different things that um, people can enjoy, what makes life worth living, you know? It's a, maybe that's a different answer for everybody, but I think people should think about that a little bit and make their own decision about what they value in those ways. You know, when you look at your, the, why do you choose to live where you live and what makes you happy in life? And, and maybe that will answer for each person, whether something like humanities, Nebraska has a place here in the state. So I find that very persuasive. Thank you. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. Yeah, yo, 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 yeah, yeah. Look at you, look at you, look at me, look at me. Everything we want, everything we need. You can be my everything. everything The way you make me feel I can do anything. anything Baby, I pray this will never change Hope we remain the same This love we maintain Feelings remain the same, remain the, same. the heart is not a game But I play a bit Hypocrite doesn't make sense The way I love, the way I feel, the way I feel. It's so chill, feels so real Making time sit still I don't know what's the, deal. what's the deal Maybe it's how your lips feel It's like I pop a pill For real Let's get it on, yeah, we both grown 
with my emotion shown. Emotion shown. Laid out on the table, young, willing, and able. Sex glares across the table. Love connection, nothing shameful. Nothing shameful. Probably be ashamed to. Not let you win, let our fairy tale begin. Feelings all in the wind, usher lovers and friends. Do you understand, comprehend? Feelings that we share, tender love and care. Keeping me aware, waves floating in the air. I see past just your derriere. Long legs, thick thighs, everything so fine. Giving me butterflies, it's about time. Relax your mind. I'ma get between your thighs, express the love I feel inside. Welcome back to Lives. I'm Stuart Chittenden. With me in conversation is Chris Summerick, the Executive Director of Humanities Nebraska. So finding that persuasive, nonetheless, there are obviously challenges and mm-hmm. hurdles facing uh, you yeah. uh, in, in sort of fulfilling on, the, on this promise. Mm-hmm. So clearly funding is, is one of those. What, what are the other obstacles? Because given as persuasive as, as um, you've made the value of humanities, uh, nonetheless, I think to some degree every day, you're having to um, either justify or or inform people of mm-hmm. the value. So yeah. what, what are these obstacles getting in the way of your aspirational success? Yeah. Well, and every obstacle can also be characterized into an opportunity too. And I'll get one example that jumps to mind is really our, our society is pretty fixated right now on catching up in the STEM areas, you know, science, technology, engineering, math. And so there's been a lot of talk about needing to really kind of invest a lot of resources in these areas. um, And so in the arts and humanities world, there's been a little concern, hey, don't forget about us kind of thing. And so that can be a challenge. But what is really interesting to me is that as this has progressed over the last couple years, this debate, on, on this, that you see more and more people in the business world, the science world, the technology world, starting to speak up a little bit for what they see, how they see the arts and humanities, the liberal arts, really relating to their environment as well. And you hear examples of um, business leaders and technology leaders saying, we are trying to snatch up students you know, coming out of the liberal arts because the way they think about things, their critical thinking skills, um, their their ability to navigate ambiguity and things like that is of great value. Not somebody who can just comes in with that full engineering background or math or whatever. I mean, you know, uh, and so there's they're they're re- recognizing a value that maybe in the initial stages of this debate wasn't really. I, identified, you know, so that's encouraging to me, actually, you know, another challenge is just people's time and people are so people's lives are so busy. I mean, I think it's hard to, you know, you rarely come across somebody that when you ask, how are you doing where they don't say something about how busy they are, you know, and I think everybody's lives have just become a a rat race. Um, And, and so it's fine. It's people consciously taking the time to do things that are reflective and enjoyable and, and opening their eyes to the world around them, looking up from their phone screens and looking at the world around them, looking people in the eye and having a conversation rather than some anonymous response on a website of, you know, some newspaper article or whatever. So there are, you know, there's a challenge there that I also feel optimistic um, that people will come around to uh, re-examine the value of that one uh, human contact. Um, yeah, I don't know. Anything you would add to that? I'm not sure that I have. I mean, that was a very thoughtful answer. You know, I think there is a a, a cultural challenge, just as a, a feature of our times, that has sought to delegitimize um, activity that is not. S- visibly seen as productive yes and so that idea of even even just going for a walk somewhere um um idly with no purpose i think Mm -hmm. that you know dickens had two types of walking one was with purpose and and the other was idly without purpose right uh, each contributed to his creativity in different ways um and i think 
we've become a, a, a single track society where mm. it's it's from A to B and it's the most efficient way to get there. And that idea of doing something that has no tangible benefit other than the slow improvement of our characters is not as valued as it used to be. Yeah. So productivity culture, and you suggested that a little bit when you talked about how everybody just says we're, we're busy. But more than that, we are work martyrs, mm-hmm. productivity martyrs. Um, yeah. And then I think to a degree we've delegitimized de- um, a life of the mind. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean a life that isn't in touch with the land or physical activity, but one where improving one's person mm-hmm. is is not productive. Right. And so we delegitimize the value of that too. Yeah. And you have to hope that these things go and, uh, you know, that the pendulum will swing back the other way, you know. And I think sometimes it has to swing one way for people to wake up a little bit and recognize that they've been neglecting something really important, you know. And again, maybe I'm a foolish optimist, but I feel like that that pendulum will start swinging back. The difference being now, though, is the tech, the advances in technology that just continue and continue. It gets more and more frightening the mistakes we can make in those periods of time where people aren't uh, when they're they're looking at technology in in a vacuum as opposed to maybe in context of the world around them, for example. So you you know, I mean, that's the the one thing that worries me. I think is that the capacity to make mistakes as a human race is becoming greater and greater. You know, now than it was a hundred years ago or whatever. Um, I'd rather take a foolish optimist than a smart pessimist. <laughs> well, good. I'll, t- I'll take <laughs> so that as a compliment. Panglossian, I guess. Yeah. But. I would add for people in Omaha, another challenge for Nebraska, I feel, though, is to the, the, de- the shifts, you know, to Omaha and Lincoln. I mean, it's interesting to me the challenges rural Nebraska faces. And, and I, you know, Lincoln is the smallest city I've lived in in my life. And so I don't have a background of growing up in rural America anywhere. And I feel that that's something that our state's going to be grappling with for years to come too. And it's not just a human, it's not a humanities specific problem, but I think that it's an area where our organization can maybe help be a catalyst for some intentional thinking discussion about, about that issue. So what, what might that look like? So I think it has two components for the state of Nebraska. Yeah. One is, as you mentioned, rural, urban. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then it's also true that the two most significant urban centers are both very proximate and very much to the east of the state. Right. And then it's an eight-hour drive before you get to the west of the state. And the Scotts Bluff sort of metro area is is relatively uh, small compared to right. Lincoln. Anyway, so sure. the point being, we have this east-west divide, which is all, almost a geographical representation of the rural-urban divide, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. So how do we, either through humanities or otherwise, think about bridging some of those gaps? Um, one thing I've been really um, uh, appreciative of the last couple of years is seeing some of the Omaha area arts and humanities organizations start to take on an an aspect of uh, a statewide aspect to their missions. And I mentioned Nebraska Shakespeare, for example. So Nebraska Shakespeare does Shakespeare on the Green at UNO. Um, You know, they do great Shakespeare productions, uh, uh, Shakespeare on the Green, but they also go around the state to schools all across the state and do and get into the schools and do um, workshops with kids all across the state. And so you're taking an Omaha cultural organization that's really outstanding and you're bringing that to these communities um, everywhere. And that is, um, I think there's a two-way street there where they're learning from each other. So the people in Omaha that are involved in this project are learning from these kids and teachers and families in small communities all over the state. Omaha Symphony does this uh, as well, and just a few other organizations, um, you know, that are getting out there uh, doing more work in the state. So that is maybe kind of an organic thing as opposed to, you know, setting up some sort of framework. It's just happening. And part of my job, our, our job at Humanities Nebraska, is to try to help find those connecting points and, and help make them happen. Um, 
you mentioned uh, we, we we're speaking before about here in Nebraska and this good living tour, which here in Nebraska originating in Omaha, but um, you know their executive director Andy Norman's from Imperial and so has this connection to rural Nebraska. So you, this is another organization where you're starting to see a real statewide network develop, um, where bringing Omaha bands out to greater Nebraska and, and then the bands from those local towns playing alongside them. Or another one would be the louder than a bomb poetry slam poetry contest that high school kids are doing originated by Nebraska writers collective spreading all across the state. And so it's, um, it's really encouraging to see those kinds of things happening. And that may be the key for overcoming that challenge to rural Nebraska. You're listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. Whoa, oh, mercy, mercy me. All oh, things ain't what they used to be now. Where did all the blue skies go? Poison is the wind that blows from the north and south and sea. Whoa, mercy, mercy me. All things and what they used to be lost Oil wasted on the oceans and upon our seas Fish full of mercury Oh, mercy, mercy, me All things and what they used to be lost Radiation underground and in the Animals and birds who live nearby lives. Oh, mercy, mercy, me. All things and what they used to be. What about this overcrowded land? How much more be you from me? Can't you stand You are listening to Lives. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is Chris Sumrick, Executive Director of Humanities Nebraska. So you mentioned that you moved to Nebraska when you were 16. Yeah. So tell me just a little bit about your upbringing and, and then sort of what drew you to Nebraska. Sure. So I grew up in Kirkwood, Missouri, a suburb of St. Louis, and lived my entire life um, until I was 16 in, in Kirkwood. And my father came home one day and said, I'm getting a job transfer and we're moving to Nebraska. And, you know, there's stunned silence in the house. So it's, I'm the oldest, 16, my brother's 15, my sister's 12, and my mother, and we're just, and, uh, you know, they're just like, that's it, kids, we're moving, you know. And so uh, tore away from, you know, the kids that I was in school with from kindergarten through sophomore year of high school, um, in a very urban environment to um, Papillion is where I w- we moved to. And, um, you know, it seemed like it was going to be the end of the world initially. And it just was a very different, um, a very different surrounding. And, um, you know, it just took a lot of getting used to as a 16-year-old. And this is in the mid-80s. And, um, you know, now uh, I've, I've always thanked my parents ever, you know, after that, that they brought me here because I really did find my, my home place, I think here and have been happy to stay here ever since. What was the first inkling that you'd moved beyond that, the pain of transition and you started to recognize that actually Nebraska was home? That's a great question. And I would say it took a few years and I would say it probably took um, I think through college, I think even through those college years, which I attended university of Nebraska and Lincoln. And, uh, I think it was as I emerged from college and, uh, you know, uh, started just getting to know people a little bit more around the state and doing more traveling around the state and just putting down a little bit more roots here 
is where it started to fall into place. There wasn't any specific experience. Um, it was gradual. And certainly then once I moved into the nonprofit world, um, you know, and started working first with Audubon and then Humanities Nebraska, where it sealed the deal. What would surprise people about Nebraska? I think what would surprise people about Nebraska is the great variety in landscapes in Nebraska. If you go to the Wildcat Hills near Scotts Bluff or Toadstool uh, Park near Crawford or, um, you know, I already mentioned the Sand Hills or Niobrara National Scenic River, it looks, those places look nothing like what people think Nebraska is, you know, the, the endless cornfields, um, you know, which is certainly part of it. But I think that would be something that surprises surprise people about Nebraska. And the other thing I think would surprise people about Nebraska is how um, well-traveled and um, cosmopolitan a lot of people in Nebraska are. Even if they are from small towns, the pe people are well-traveled. I, I went with a group of Nebraskans to Cuba, to Havana, Cuba in December and spent a week in Havana with people from all over Nebraska. And, you know, getting to know this very, uh, this interesting group of Nebraskans in Havana and how at home they, I mean, they immediately fell right at home in Havana navigating the city and, and just talking about their other travel experiences. I thought people in other parts of the country would probably be surprised that a group of Nebraskans could just just that quickly adapt to a place as different as Havana, Cuba. So that makes me want to ask then, what would people find familiar about Nebraska? If, if Nebraskans can go to Cuba and, and feel instinctively at ease and at home, mm -hmm. what is it? What is it that is familiar about Nebraska? I think people would probably expect Nebraskans to be humble and down to earth the way that I initially characterized them. I don't think that would be surprising to them. You know, uh, I think whether you like the Nebraska nice catchphrase or not, I think that people would not be surprised. People truly are nice in, in Nebraska. They're respectful and they're, um, you know, compassionate. I think those qualities would not be a surprise to other people. Omaha got it right. I, I'll credit the Omaha Chamber of Commerce when they said, we don't coast. I thought that was a brilliant catchphrase for, for Omaha. You know, so I think a good catchphrase should not be acceptable generally to people with a ho-hum. Right. It should offend you or yeah. you should love it. Yeah. It should be love, hey, yeah. there should be no in-between. Yeah, provoke you one way or the other, right? So if you had to come up with a catchphrase <laughs> for Nebraska that wasn't any of these, but yeah. your your own version of a catchphrase oh, you for you can't possibly put me on the spot yes, like I that, can. Stuart. No. I just did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not a creative person. Honestly, in my job, I've, I surround myself by creative people and people that are smarter than me all the time. And so I am rarely the one in, in the room that comes up with with uh, the good ideas on these. So, I, you know, that's, a, that's an, a great question. I just, I'll stick with what I said, that Omaha got it right. Uh, I don't think it would have maybe worked as well for, for Nebraska. Maybe it would have. We don't coast. I don't know. Maybe they should have stole it. Like we stole the state capital from Omaha all those years ago, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. So, so let me offer you then the, the final word, okay. uh, a final word about Nebraska. It's the sesquicentennial. You've described that you have a, a feeling of being at home in the mm -hmm. state. What makes life worth living in Nebraska for you? Yeah. Um, thank you for asking that because I think Nebraska does have something special that it should hold on to, and it is the people. It is that um, that thoughtfulness, that independent m mindset, um, that work ethic. Um, and I really hope Nebraska holds on to that. I worry a little bit right now, actually, about 
whether or not Nebraska may slip into, um, and I'm speaking politically now, honestly, you know, we are so fortunate in my opinion to have a, a nonpartisan state legislature, for example, you know, with the unicameral, I think that whole system, um, even though I don't live in that world from a day-to-day basis, I think what it represents is something about, is an example of what Nebraska is and that idea that we can set aside political differences to a certain extent and work together to accomplish something. And I really worry if, if Nebraska starts sliding into um, uh, discounting that or sort of moves away from that, you know. And, and I think in today's climate, that's, that is a real, a real worry. Um, so, so I think I would encourage all Nebraskans to really think about holding on to that part of the, their identity of just, you know, being able to listen to each other and, and um, respect each other and not understand you don't have to agree with each other and everything, but that we all, you know, maybe we, you know, maybe we're wrong feeling special being in Nebraska, but if we think, if we think it's special and we think it's cool, then great. You know, what, what does it matter if no one else agrees with us, right? I've been in conversation today with Chris Summerick, Executive Director of Humanities in Nebraska, and Chris, you are special. <laughs> Why, thank you, Stuart. That makes my weekend, actually. Thank you for being on the <laughs> you show. <bet. laughs> That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.